All right. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to VUX World, the podcast that brings you the very best and brightest minds fields of conversational and they do what they do so that you can do what you do better. Hopefully, I'm sure you will, as I'm sure I will, because I always, I always do. And I am invited to be joined by Cordell France, who is the CEO of Seeker Technology. Hello, welcome. Thank you very much for the opportunity, and uh, thank you for having me on the show. Excited. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Uh, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm glad to, uh, for you to join us. So where you been in Dallas, is that right? Yes, sir. Dallas, Texas. Nice. And Texas is, uh, yeah, not that, I'm, but it's going through this, like, uh, kind of like hotspot, isn't it, for, for various technology startups. Everyone seems to be flooding into Texas at the moment. Is it, what is it about Texas that, that is driving more people and more technology startups and whatnot to the area? Yeah, so uh, Austin, Texas has gotten really, really hot and Dallas is actually kind of absorbing a lot of that demand as well. And uh, the reason that it's kind of growing so rapidly in the tech domain is for a few reasons. Um, it's uh, the cheaper cost of living. So uh, California is a bit, you know, Silicon Valley is a little bit uh, tough to live in. And some of the other uh, really high tech or cities that were known for their high technologies uh, have a, a higher cost of living. Uh, no income taxes in Texas. Uh, so some of these things kind of uh, have facilitated a little bit of a migration in that sense towards uh, uh, towards these areas. And um, I think that there's been some uh, some enticements for businesses to start and relocate here as well as at, like uh, at a legal level. So um, it's uh, there's there's a lot of talent that uh, is also available and it's, it's creating some pretty significant opportunities. It's, it's really cool to kind of watch it materialize over, uh, you know, over the last few months and to see how it's it's really getting quite hot for tech no income tax so mm. you maybe you earn your taxes Is that right? at the state level no interesting right yeah so, yeah there's a, there's a few states in the united states and texas is one of them right wow that sounds good yeah <laughs> <laughs> It gets nice. you on a few other things like uh, out, you know, really, really crazy property taxes and stuff. So sometimes it kind ah, of right. negates it. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's a pretty good enticement for you know uh, a lot of people that are, uh, especially young people, uh, trying to start a career in tech. Definitely. So are you from Dallas, or did you kind of migrate to that at some point? Uh, so I migrated here. Uh, I actually grew up in Idaho and Utah uh, in the United States and, um, and and started off there, got did my undergrad there and, uh, and ended up migrating this way um, towards after I got a, after I was in the industry for a while and pretty much been here ever since. So it's, uh, it's a good place. I like it really flat, but I like it. <laughs> Just moved to a quaint little spa town near London called Tunbridge Wells. Another quaint little it's called Harrogate and Tullows is like this like that it's one hill after another you go for a run in Tunbridge Wells you could run 5k and feel like you've run 25 Harrogate is a total opposite oh, wow. is, is totally flat I went for a run this morning and I'm looking at the elevation gain I climbed a grand total of 19 meters uh, <laughs> in about 30 minutes so it's definitely, it's definitely flat so but it's better for running though you see <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Like, I, I would have never thought that I would have missed mountains and elevation changes uh, when I first moved to Texas. But like, that's something I look forward to seeing when I, whenever I go back and visit family. You know, it, it's it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. So, tell us about our tech then. To see our technologies. What is uh, what is it? And what is your aim? What's your mission? What is it that you do? Sure. So Secret Technologies is an artificial intelligence company that's aiming to really kind of democratize AI in a couple of different respects in which you really see other companies today. So we have an emphasis on making AI mobile. Uh, so really an emphasis on edge computing, making AI explainable so that we can kind of get away from the black box approach and also making AI ethical. So really a heavy review of our data sets, having industry leaders come in and actually work with the engineers on the data sets we train our models on um, to really uh, kind of add uh, another level of oversight so that we can rectify bias in a lot of regards in our AI models. 
all this comes together to really address um, some industries in which aren't receiving a whole lot of attention or as much attention right now as some other really prominent industries such as self-driving cars, smart home assistants. There's a lot of heavy investment as far as capital goes and research in self-driving cars and, 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 and other regards such as smart home assistance, but uh, other domains that maybe aren't receiving such uh, a heavy amount of attention, such as agriculture, maybe manufacturing, some aspects of medicine. That's where we're really trying to focus on and really trying to uh, emphasize our technology for, uh, because uh, we, again, we're trying to democratize AI, right? Trying to get it in the hands of everybody because there's such an incredible amount of potential that we haven't really even tapped with artificial intelligence. And if we can kind of get it in the hands of a lot of these other industry players, um, you know, it, it really accelerates the pace of development in, in several industries instead of the select few. Um, so we've uh, most of, most of our, our technology kind of has a focus in some of those, uh, you know, uh, we call them disadvantaged industries. Interesting. Uh, shout out to, uh, shout out to uh, Paul Cusinas. People, hello, Paul. Nice to have you along. Pleasure. Uh, so, so, tell us um, why. Why, in fact, actually, before we go, tell us uh, uh, about. So, is it is it like a platform that uh, folks in the agriculture sector can get a hold on and build conversational solutions? Is it a technology that you kind of have the scenes where you do the design, build, implementation? Like, what if someone was gonna? acquire some services from Seeker, what exactly would they be getting? So uh, our, our primary product is uh, an API that actually uh, it accepts multiple multimodal uh, sensor data. So uh, we have we can accept microphone data for natural language processing. We can accept camera data for computer vision applications. We can even go in, uh, as far as accepting radar data. And so we really have a platform that has all these knobs um, that we can turn on or off that uh, allows you to either process them in parallel um, as some applications I can discuss in a moment or uh, something as simple as just I just want a, a natural language processing application to uh, facilitate for a conversational bot uh, or yeah, another another different type of automatic speak recognition ap application or something like that. But uh, it's really uh, an AI platform that hosts computer vision natural language processing, um, advanced signal processing in some other regards um, that we uh, are trying to kind of make it as a package solution that you can use in these different industries um, to um, you know, be able to uh, uh, really achieve some significant outcomes uh, to some some hard problems. So it's it's a, effectively an API. Interesting. What's on, on disadvantaged, as you call it, disadvantaged? industries and what is it about your culture uh manufacturing you know medicine what, what is it about those industries specifically that kind of drew you towards that as an area of focus so well, before we started at seeker my co-founder and i we uh we every time we saw a, a headline about artificial intelligence it was always in self-driving cars or it seemed to be like in the same three industries right and it's like there's you know a lot of these solutions can be applied to other applications, other industries that uh, maybe aren't really fluent in, uh, in artificial intelligence. And so we did a little bit of, of, of research before we actually started the company. And uh, for agriculture, for example, a lot of people we talked to uh, really didn't understand artificial intelligence and how it worked uh, and really, you know, how it could be used in their in their specific uh, domain. And so after kind of explaining to them, hey, this is what it is. This is how you can use natural language processing to kind of help facilitate uh, better outcomes in, in your regard. In, in, uh, your company, uh, the light clicks, right? They, they light up and they get so excited and they start to see all the potential and all the opportunities that they can um, facilitate with with these solutions. And, uh, you know, they end up, they start gaining, uh, uh, you know, kind of a relationship with us and we start developing products for them and it kind of expands to other players within the same industry. And so uh, that that was that was pretty appealing is is one is kind of, uh, again, democratize, but also promote awareness about what AI actually can do for other industries. Another thing is. Um, my partner and I came from uh, a Department of Defense, and a lot and and a lot of the um, reason that AI hadn't been heavily used in some solutions within the Department of Defense is for a few reasons. 
The first reason is because uh, the consequences of an artificial intelligence model being wrong are very severe, right? Because if you're using this in a very sensitive setting, uh, and this goes for medical applications as well, if an AI model is wrong, uh, it could cost lives, right? So the, these, the consequences are very severe. Secondly, uh, a lot of these AI solutions aren't explainable. So if we have a neural network that is processing data and it outputs a classification, it's really hard to go back through and see, or it was really hard to go back through and see why it gave an incorrect classification. So why was the model wrong? Uh, so making, we saw there was a need for making explainable solutions that we can go back through and say, okay, I know the exact group of neurons that facilitated this incorrect classification. Uh, and how do I tweak this accordingly? Or there seems to be a, a high amount of bias and a high amount of weight over this group of neurons or in this part of the algorithm. How do we rectify that? So uh, being, we, we took significant uh, effort in actually building out an explainability feature with our products so that we can, uh, A, the engineers can understand where they went wrong or how we can retrain the model, and B, the customer can know, you know, wh where's the issue? Is it, is it on our end? Is it on a usability end? Is it on an algorithmic end? Why did we not get the outcome we wanted? Um, and we saw this as an opportunity to really garner trust with uh, some, some industries that, uh, are apprehensive toward using AI. So, for example, medicine, right, and in, def and, and in defense. Um, so by, by implementing this explainability uh, feature and also kind of emphasize, really trying to shoot for marginal increases in improvement. So by saying we can, uh, inc we can um, augment a physician's or a surgeon's capability of being able to perform their job 10% better or 10% faster in surgery or in some regard, that's a pretty realistic uh, achievement, right? Instead of coming in and saying, we're going to have the time of, of a surgeon doing his job and we're going to do um, make it 200% better and 300% better. These are pretty lofty increases in which you're kind of over-promising and under-delivering, which we saw a lot of artificial intelligence solutions doing. So by shooting for a smaller uh, marginal increase and building on top of that, building on top of that, uh, it's, it's actually worked quite well. And we've been able to kind of garner a lot of more trust between uh, industry partners. Interesting. I'm going to some use cases, uh, examples and stuff, but Paul's got a decent question, which, which I think is relevant to the fact we're on. Uh, Paul, I know you mentioned that my mic is a bit flaky. Apologies if my mic is a bit flaky. My internet signal is, is going to go at the moment. I've been in this house for a grand total of about eight days and uh, still in bedding in period as far as the internet goes. So hopefully, hopefully it will improve. Uh, but Paul's, Paul's question is around, well, it's really a question, it's a, comment around the ability and explain a bit of this seems to be a great feature perhaps let's dive into that a little bit more you mentioned there's explainability features for developers for users i'm wondering if you can give us an example of you know this explainability engine perhaps perhaps actually we can combine the two let's give us an example of a use that is in practice and then how the explainability feature to wrap around that use case if you don't mind yeah absolutely so the, uh, the, the principle that our math teachers taught us in school comes back to haunt us here, right? Always show your work. Why did you get the solution that you received, right? I hated this as a kid because, you know, I, I, did, I did pretty well in math. And a lot of the times I could just, I'd just do it in my head and put down the answer. And then I would get a bad grade and under, not understand why, right? Show your work. We got to show our work. So that's, we took that approach uh, with uh, our artificial intelligence uh, API. So if you can imagine... Um, Let's imagine uh, a, a recurrent neural network that's uh, acting in a natural language processing application, right? So we're going to have a series of, of or a time series of data, an audio waveform that's going to be monitored by this neural network uh, to try to either predict, you know, what it's saying or, or try to determine some pattern in it to help facilitate a question. So we, we have this, this host of neurons. Anyone who is not familiar with the neural network is... Uh, it's, it's basically a neuron as a mathematical function to some regard and an algorithm feeds uh, data into this host of neurons, sometimes they're on the orders of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions, um, and to be able to kind of help solve uh, each, take a small problem or recognize a smaller pattern within the overall uh, larger sequence to try to kind of come together and realize the significant pattern you're looking for. So we actually, we actually track the neural pathway for throughout this neural network. So being able to assign in, uh, identifiers to neurons and say, okay, I see that when I 
when I received this uh, audio transcript, it went through the neural network, and this is how it was processed. Uh, and, and you can actually see which neurons were activated, which neurons weren't activated, and kind of be able to facilitate, say, okay, I see that it was wrong here, or it was wrong over this group of neurons, but it was correct over here. And you can kind of have more insight in how to uh, either retrain the data or insight in how your algorithm is, is, is actually biased, right? Or your data set could be biased. Now, if you have hundreds of millions of neurons, uh, this is a pretty hefty, uh, this is a pretty hefty task, right? Because you don't want to have to sift through every neuron to see if it was fired and which group were fired. So we had to get kind of clever on how we cluster neurons and how we understand which ones were activated and which ones weren't. So this is at a very technical level. Um, and if you take this, the user doesn't actually want to see this, right? They don't, they don't care about which neurons are fired. They care that their algorithm was wrong and why it was wrong or why it was right. So we had to go a step beyond that and create a, uh, like a, 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 a explainability report that they can, that a user can actually interpret so they can understand, uh, okay, Hey, we see that this part of the algorithm might incorporate some bias. We're going to send some data back to the engineer so that they can retrain it. Or, uh, we need more data regarding this certain type of, of outcome so that we can rectify this part of bias um, within the model. So we're, uh, we're really trying to build this explainability feature out um, to kind of meet the needs of clients and customers, but we're trying to build it so that it can actually, uh, it, can, it can explain its responses just as a human can, right? If you act a doc ask a doctor what's wrong with a patient, they can explain the reasoning why in a very prose form, in a very uh, human interpretable form. Um, if we're going to garner trust within some communities such as medicine and defense, and we're going to actually have AI uh, provide solutions in these regards, a lot of the users expect the same, right? And, and if they're going to provide solutions that have very, very high consequences, we need to know when they're wrong and why um, so that we can actually make progress in this regard and, and actually you know, live up to the promises that we're making and how accurate these AI detection systems are. So I'll yeah. pause for a moment. Are there any questions uh, regarding that? Does that make sense it may, as far as the report goes? It makes sense. It makes perfect sense. What, the one thing where there's a gap in my understanding isn't necessarily around ability and, and being transparent about what the model is doing and trying to look at the, the source or the cluster of neurons, the, the, the culprit, so to speak. The, the thing I suppose I would like to learn a bit more about is how you take that and draw out the conclusion that it may be a bias so where, where does the because for example a bias maybe we're talking about different types of biases I'm, I'm referring to a bias around perhaps it recognizes men more than perhaps it recognizes uh, american english over uh you know people with a spanish accent or, or you know something like that but is that the kind of bias you're searching for in this and how if so how do you attribute the activity that you're able to find or the, or the issues that you find in the neural network you attribute that back to you in know, a problem bias and not just a problem with some other in in the understanding it's a great question so uh there's a couple of different ways in which we address this so we actually pre-process the data in some regards to actually determine uh okay you know for example in a speech application can I even recognize anything that the person is saying, or is this a language that I am entirely not trained on, right? Uh, or is there a lot of background noise that needs to be filtered out, uh, or can the microphone even understand anything of, of an English sentence or something like that? So there's like a more of a rule-based non-AI pre-processing uh, pre-processing algorithm that goes into play before it is even fed into the AI that kind of tries to do some error mitigation and say, okay, uh, I, yeah, th these are the issues that I've encountered so far um, and, and try to re relay that back to the user. Now, it, this uh, there, there, it sounds simple, but there's there's quite a bit of complexity in that because each domain has a bit of different uh, other has issues that you may or may not be able to uh, or that you have to adapt the API for or that you have to account for. Uh, AI has or natural language processing has different issues than computer vision processing will, right? And uh, on top of that, we've also got to uh, before we even deploy an application. We have to train the application uh, with the users. So uh, if, if you're familiar with transfer learning um, or, or live model updates, federated learning, anything like that, uh, we basically have uh, we, we, a lot of our solutions are mobile, right? So we've got uh, mobile applications that are associated with them 
primarily for this purpose of providing uh, additional explainability and bias mitigation. So uh, a user will be able to actually provide feedback on whether the classification was right or wrong. So if it was wrong, um, we can we can send this back and it actually will, the model will autonomously go back and adjust the weights of the model it's, uh, and, and kind of update itself. And if uh, addition and it will do the same thing if it's correct as well. Now, uh, the user in a real world scenario, you don't want to do this, right? You don't want to have to go back and, and input the your uh, whether or not the AI model was correct or not, because what's the point of having the AI model? So we have this uh, this pre-training that we actually do before we deploy it, where uh, in a live scenario, it's going back and being updated by actual users in, in, in the uh, application itself. Um, so this, this helps kind of be able to identify where some weaknesses are in the model. Um, if it doesn't, it's not picked up by a pre-processing that rule-based system, then we know that it might be something within the algorithm and we can go back and actually see, uh, okay, you know, there's significant, these, these, this group of neurons is significantly used higher than this other group of neurons. Why is that? Is it, why is, why, is, you know, a, a, a good neural network will attribute weights across the entire neural network so that they're effectively all used. And if you have only part of it that's used, then, you know, you should retrain or there's obviously some bias in the system because it's using the same neural pathways over and over. So this kind of helps rectify that and that we can actually determine if our, we actually have a, a really uniform, unbiased uh, training system. On top of that, before any of this even starts, before we even go into to develop a, a neural network uh, or an AI application, we look at a data set, right? And we have industry experts come in and review the data set such that... Uh, you know, they're actually looking for holes in, in gaps that we may have missed to make sure that it's, it's well-rounded. So um, if, you, uh, if you're familiar with uh, any facial recognition, news and facial recognition, there's a, a lot of concern right now because uh, it, incorrectly, um, it incorrectly provides uh, responses to some demographics over the other. And uh, that comes really down, come, uh, really comes down to your training set, right? If you have holes in the data and if you have... Uh, uh, unequal proportions of weight, then it's, it's going to provide, it doesn't matter how good your algorithm is, it's going to provide uh, biased results. So by having critical and, and really uh, meticulous review of these data sets beforehand by engineers, by industry leaders, by people that may not even have any skin in the game, but have a mindset of, of more of an ethical mindset on how to uh, incorporate data into uh, the algorithm and really account for all aspects of the domain space, then you were able to uh, kind of rectify a lot of the biases before it even is touches the algorithm. So there's a lot of heavy lifting that's done beforehand on just looking at the data set to make sure it's very representative of the population, statistically at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is this stuff something that you do every single time you work with a new client? Or is this something that you've already done and continue to do kind of behind the core technology perspective yes so it yes and no for example if we're using like uh if we're using a a like a uh, let's say a client comes to us and they want a body detection system just skeletal tracking for whatever reason right let's say um, we've trained skeletal tracking on a, a for a sports application and we just and a client just wants a skeletal tracking application for security we can leverage a lot of that same data in uh between both domains because they're, they're, they're likely going to be the same for unless the customer has a really, really specific purpose, which they want to try to identify within uh, skeletal patterns. If we have an entirely new uh, domain that we haven't ever trained anything on before, then we do, and we do encourage going through this process with our customers because uh, you know, this, this, it's the, it's our, our ethos of, of why we started the company and it's our, our founding principles. It is a bit cumbersome uh, from someone who just kind of wants to be able to download an AI model and, and have it work and go, right? But we, we can promise additional accuracy and it really kind of rectifies and, and help uh, a lot of these biases and helps emphasize the ethics behind how we're building our models. So by taking a few extra days to really, or a few extra weeks even to review these data sets and, and, and you know, provide a very accurate solution, uh, these customers get results that they might not receive elsewhere and also get solutions that they know are, are very representative without any lurking variables within the data. Mm. Interesting. So, so you mentioned skeletal track, um, and I know that you mentioned around uh, explainable AI in a kind of general 
sense you mentioned conversational AI and that kind of like body movements and image recognition and things. What kind of relationship does that side have? It sounds in between lines, obviously you've got immense capabilities, the whole concept of AI and building AI models and machine learning models and neural networks. See, I imagine that the same principles apply whether you're building an NLU uh, or you're, you're providing something for, for image recognition or something like that. So what Seeker does is kind of in that conversational space, conversational space versus broader application technologies. I would say at least a third of our data or a third of our application is in the conversational space or at least the natural language processing space. Um, there's a, we've done a lot of, of NLP in medicine and we've actually used a lot of NLP uh, pro- practices to uh, leverage that in agriculture. So we've actually used those applications to uh, provide insight in how to an, an engine is working in some regards. And I can, it sounds crazy, but I can talk about that in a moment. But uh the one thing, like, uh, in order to build, like, a speech recognition application, you really have, or a natural language processing application, you really have automated speech recognition, right? So being able to actually partition what a person's saying and put that into words, and then you have to go through the, you know, you have that recognized speech. Now, what is it actually saying? So uh, I'm trying to find out who went to the store. And I have a, a series of words that came in that I partitioned and I recognized. Um, and, you know, I, I'm trying to figure out who went to the store based off of that string of words. So being able to provide that part, the NLP part, seems to be a lot more um, or has been a lot more um, difficult for us to implement just because of the different domains we're in uh, versus the automatic speech recognition regard. It seems like uh, there's a lot of good ASR applications out there that seem to, um, you know, that seem to have solved a lot of problems Uh, in background noise. We've, we've had some uh, that seems to provide the biggest issues as far as ASR goes, just filtering out background noise. But even then uh, there's been a lot of great uh, tech that's come out. That's kind of rectified that. But uh, yeah, I would say about a third of our, our tech is, is in, is in natural language processing. Mm. And do you, do you, from a kind of, it's interesting to speak to someone who is proficient in AI models and technologies. Most of them, we speak to people who purely specialize in speech recognition, for example. Last week, Andrew Richards of Soundhound more or less had that conversation about filtering out background noise, you know, uh, being back in for Mike Playsmith around ASR. But it's interesting to someone who has expertise in a lot of different AI spaces. I'm wondering whether for Seeker, do you actually differentiate from project to project between types of AI applications that you're creating? Or do you see one in the same? Like if that skeletal tracking thing, do you approach a project like that in the exact same way as you would approach a project that requires speech recognition? Like do you differentiate? Was it all of all a form of the same thing as essentially is just it's AI and, and machine and models and neural networks and such forth? So we approach them all, all projects in the same manner as far as the uh, explainability parts and and kind of analyzing the data set beforehand goes. But we, you know, we we've effectively tried to build the trunk of a tree uh, that we can say okay, our API, we don't have to recode a lot of the trunk. Like we can use that, whether it's computer vision, whether it's natural language processing, reinforcement learning, whatever that might be. Um, We can take a lot of that and kind of, you know, uh, pipeline different processes out into different branches. So in a natural language processing application, we are able to utilize part of the trunk, but it's got its own branch of the API that is explicitly devoted to NLP. Now we're a startup, right? So we're we're still trying to gather a lot of different uh you know, a lot of different intelligence in different domains so that we can make this natural language processing branch uh, incredibly sophisticated, right? So that we don't have to, you know, go back and code specific solutions to different problems. We're making it very general. Um, we, I have a personal desire to really create a generalized AI in some regard um, that can be used in different applications without having to be recoded uh, or recoded significantly. And if it does, it's able to be, you know, retrained rapidly. So setting up the infrastructure for that is is really uh, key. And we've leveraged that across all domains. But 
you know, a lot of our customers, especially within uh, these applications and, you know, these disadvantaged industries, they come with very specific needs. So there's, uh, when we started out, there were a lot of, uh, there was a lot of time really developing features that accommodated these specific needs. But over time, we're able to kind of re-leverage and, you know, uh, and, and, and repurpose a lot of that into other domains. So as an example, uh, for our, our first few medical products that we did, we did uh, a natural language processing uh, application. And the first couple were very uh, specific. And um, we had to really code a lot of the um, a lot of the, the features by like hard code a lot of the features because we, we didn't have enough uh, domain knowledge to actually make a general model. Uh, but as we learn more and as we develop more and more applications, we're actually able to leverage the code and the, uh, the API previously built uh, into for the next customer and the next customer and the next customer. And, and so we don't have to actually recode anything. Uh, we can just provide it with training data and it actually outputs the result we want. So as far as the trunk of the tree goes, I think that we utilize that for all of our customers. And then we branch out uh, to, you know, if we have to develop a specific application, we definitely uh, have the capability to do that. But we're trying to build a more robust platform that uh, doesn't have need significant time investment to be recoded for new customers. We have a comment from Danny who says, great content model brands. I would second that. Definitely. Um, so you. you're talking there about you're talking there about um, the, the NLP in the medicine space. I'll be that later in terms of your your future vision for uh, the general AI and what it what it would take from where you are now to get there. But I think while we're on the NLU uh, and you had a few examples you you're on about uh, checking on on engine performance using. Uh, using sound, I think sound is talking about uh, lie detecting speech recognition. I wonder if you can just maybe share a few of those other kind of examples of, of how you've applied some of this technology uh, in areas that a lot of people who choose the podcast usually would think of it speech recognition for being used purely to process text. Uh, a sense analysis or something like that to be used in a conversational application. You're applying to a few all the interesting use case. I'm wondering if you can expand on, on some of those. Sure. So um, the lie detection portion, I'll, I'll address that in a moment. That actually goes into part of our medical application we built. For agriculture, um, we, we use natural language processing in a little bit of a different manner. So if it, pro, like uh, uh, when you're doing natural, any language is really recursive, right? Uh, if it's really spoken in a prose form, um, if you have you have a subject and a verb and a direct object, so I went to the store, right? The uh, I went to grab apples or whatever, right? You have this really recursive subject, verb, direct object, whatever, over and over and over again, and um, it, so it's really it's the in order to the natural language processing model is really looking through this cycle to try to extract meaning about what's happening. It's looking for uh, it's looking for a pattern in something. So we took that concept and we actually applied it to detecting anomalies in engine performance uh, for the purposes of agriculture. So um, I grew up on a farm and uh, a lot of the times we were actually, we, we spent broken down uh, fixing things uh, was on engines, right? Because the engine performance was, uh, we, we didn't catch the, the maintenance or we, we, we weren't able to catch the problem of the engine in time before it actually broke and cost a significant time and in, in financial investment to fix. So uh, in addressing that, you can actually, an engine runs in cycles, right? So you have a two-stroke engine and a four-stroke engine, and they're going to run in the same cycle, and they're, gonna, they're going to produce the same audible pattern um, for the most part unless there's something wrong. And you have, like, uh, different RPMs of engines, right, which are going to sound slightly different, but they're still going to produce the same type of underlying pattern. So you have, you can, if you imagine a natural language processing system that, uh, is identifying subject, verb, direct object to try to understand the meaning of that sentence. And if it's, uh, let's say in sentiment analysis, if it's positive or negative, you can apply that same thing to an engine cycle. So we have the upstroke of a two-stroke engine and a, a, a downstroke of the two-stroke engine or, or a four-stroke engine, whatever it, whatever it may be. You have these the different sounds of an upstroke and a downstroke to that the natural language processing can, uh, model can go through and say, 
okay, positive. It's positive sentiment, meaning it's positive performance, negative, meaning something's wrong. Uh, I need to look at the, what should I, if it is wrong, what's wrong with it? Is it the crankshaft? Is it uh, a bearing in the system? Is it uh, a, a blown spark plug? What is it? Something that we can actually drill down and say out of the plethora of problems that could possibly be wrong with the engine, these are the most probable two or three. So uh, being able to apply that to uh, an engine and have it just listen to have a microphone, listen to an engine over time to see, okay, this is nominal performance. This is nominal performance. Oh, I found something that wasn't nominal, right? Uh, it, it's, it's actually proved quite well. When, uh, when we're driving, right, even in your car, if you hear something wrong, you usually have to have the music down or you can't be talking on the phone or you might even be paying attention because you're trying to actually get to your destination. So sometimes you might not even hear what's going on. But if you have something that can filter out the background noise and is actually focused on just monitoring engine sounds, right, then you might actually be able to provide some predictive maintenance. So we started with this principle in agriculture um, to actually try to provide an application that works. And uh, the gentleman you spoke to um, last week uh, provided some excellent insight on background noise that I wanted to I wanted to really emphasize um, on how you filter out and how important that is, um, because it's 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 really especially in an agricultural environment, you have all these sounds that might be around you and you have to really you have to uh, filter everything out that isn't the engine of concern and really focus on that engine and then apply the NLP model in that regard to actually look for those anomalies. Um, so it's kind of a unique application, but it's worked really well mm-hmm. so far. And, and something that applies well beyond, obviously, I mean, it could be applied in aeroplanes, trains, cars, you know, you name it, absolutely anything. Obviously, mm-hmm. the challenge of that becomes driving cultural Maybe they're in a field on their own, whereas cars are surrounded by other engines and other traffic, so you might get some challenge there, but broad application with all of this is, is that something that you look for when developing these kind of solutions bring it to broader applications or are you fixed on solving that one problem for agriculture and if it does scale beyond then yeah so it no we definitely look into the future on how to incorporate this at scale right so um, we started with agriculture just because um, it was an easy vehicle. Uh, it's something that we've addressed before and, you know, fits the domain of that disadvantage uh, or the definition of that disadvantaged industry um, that we spoke about earlier. But you can definitely use it for different types of engines, airplane engines, right? Predictive maintenance at an airport, um, car engines, right? Uh, the biggest issue we've or that we think of at scale is being able to uh, really focus on one engine over the other and and filter out that background noise because you have to be able to figure out filter out conversation filter out other engines filter out any other any other uh, chatter that's going on in the background in order to use this Uh, one thing that actually has come pretty or that has been really advantageous in addressing some of these problems is turning these uh, turning sounds into spectrograms so instead of the time frequency domain, we turn sounds into images uh, into the time frequency decibel domain, I think, it, or amplitude frequency decimal domain, decibel domain, rather. Um, so with this, you can use a convolutional neural network. You, it's image processing. It's image recognition in a natural language processing application. Uh, so it, wow. it's, 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 it, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting and it, it works really well. Um, there's a lot of papers on this, uh, you can, you can research and find, but, uh, you're using computer vision for sounds. It sounds nuts, but it is crazy and it works really, really well. Yeah, it does. Cause more, anyone who's had any experience with digital things like, you know, making music or editing podcasts or editing video or anything like that, I've probably come across these kind of, spe- I actually few times um with the podcast what i tend to do is i audio and just I, I do i apply a eq you've got a good mic so this obviously won't take much touching up but sometimes people talk to have just got their built-in laptop mic and mm-hmm. you, when, when you when you compress it and, and level the volumes it just sounds terrible so to apply eq count those horrible frequencies and sometimes the just this little noise that I hear and I can't identify it. And so sometimes I'll use that spectrum analyzer just to see if there's a little spike. There. Uh, and then I'll, then I'll hone the EQ there to see if that's it. And, and quite often oh, it okay. works. So, so, so sometimes those can be used in, in music production, but I've never thought about using that in an NLP. Because if you can get that analysis right, you could probably use each record 
recognition, fans of stuff. Yeah, it's it's interesting because a lot of uh, a lot of natural language processing approaches to solving problems can be used in other domains, right? Um, and and you know, really, language is a sound. Uh, it's a very unique sound because we all speak differently and we all speak in a different manner. We all have so there, we have different dialects, different accents, different uh, languages, even. But it's really uh, it's it's just looking at sounds and trying to derive a pattern of information from them. So you can apply those you know those approaches to really anything that uh, you're trying to find a pattern in sound with. Um, you bring up a really good approach or a really good uh, topic I want to touch on, which is uh, you know kind of trying to filter out things in the microphone that you can't figure out where they are. One of the issues we see uh, at scale and what we're trying to figure out is how much can be rectified with software and how much needs to be rectified on the actual design of the microphone. So is it a mechanical problem or is it a software problem? Um, it may be that uh, in order to find certain patterns uh, for certain engines, you actually need a microphone that can detect a different level of frequency than the one that you're actually using, right? Because not all microphones can detect all you know, the same types of, of uh, frequencies. But uh, that's something that you know, we might have to get into is actually developing a custom microphone for uh, some engines in, in some regards. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, anyone that's interested in, in kind of uh, energy conservation and, and really implementing that effort, uh, is, is, this, is a, this is a good application that uh, you know, can really save a lot of fuel in a lot of different regards, providing preventative maintenance. Mm, interesting. Yeah, with the microphone technology, I mean, said Andrew uh, Richards from Soundweek was talking uh, about how the the technologies come on, and we we got into a good conversation actually as well about things like polar patterns. So frequency response is one thing in terms of the how sensitive a microphone is to certain frequencies, but obviously every mic has a polar pattern for those that don't know actually the space around the mic that picks up the signal. Uh, so this one has a very narrow polar pattern that pretty much is just looking forward. And so if I talk behind it, it's probably going to be a lot quieter because the microphone to pick up sound behind it. So a lot, mm -hmm. a lot of this kind of stuff kind of comes into the equation whether you use kind of clusters and stuff like that. It's it's it's, it's a really interesting uh, topic area. Uh, but ultimately what goes, as you said, what goes into the microphone, whether it's an engine, whether it's, uh, spoken words it's audio isn't it and so really it's audio processing applying an ai model to audio processing to audio signal to try and derive some insight and so how did you because it's been used we've ceased to diagnose or not necessarily completely diagnose but to strong signals to the diagnosis of covid when in a cough i think Volker before they were acquired by uh, by snapchat we're working on that, and a few others have as well. Um, a company called Canary Speech, who can, through with three minutes of audio, they can diagnose Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, a whole bunch of stuff. But I've just been able to tell if someone's lying by listening to the sound of their voice. So how did you apply techniques to, to, to make a headway in, in that respect? Tell us about the whole notion of lying story. Yes. Yeah, so this was probably, uh, and it's still an ongoing effort because it's, it's, it's really medically based. And so everything in, in medical medicine has to be proven through a clinical trial before it can ever even be released to public. Um, so we, uh, we're actually, we're, we, it's, it's been, uh, it's been a very interesting development in the fact that we've had to do multimodal sensory fusion. So what I mean by that, and to give a brief overview of the application is, uh, if you go into a diagnostic interview um, with a neuropsychologist, this application is specifically for neuropsychology right now. If you go into an uh, interview with uh, one of these doctors uh, and, and you're trying to, you know, uh, figure out maybe if uh, you if a person has Alzheimer's or if they have PTSD, if they have, you know, depression, um, whatever, you know, mental uh mental disability they might have or whatever it is, uh, they, they're recording notes and they're asking you a bunch of questions, right? We've seen an exceeding demand with uh, COVID, right? Because there's a lot of people that have, um, you know, the, the, uh, this, it's affected our mentality so much that neuropsychologists are very overloaded uh, with the amount of people that, we've, that they, they're seeing. So uh, you're, we, what we did is we built a mobile application um, that sits on a tablet that um, with the patient's permission, um, we ask to analyze their voice and their body track, like their skeletal tracking data, their facial expressions, their pupil constriction. Um, and we do the same with the doctor. 
Now we're not recording any data, but we're live processing it because we have to be compliant with uh, HIPAA standards and different medical standards uh, to actually make this work and make this uh, something that they will accept. So we're not recording anything other than really time series data, um, no footage, no microphone, audio, anything. But uh, the problem and what it's doing is it's, it's, it's monitoring your body language and it's monitoring your audio for uh, signs in which you might be a little uh, reluctant to answer appropriately. So if a neuropsychologist is trying to drill down to uh, really, you know, uh, an, an, a traumatic event in your life that may have contributed to PTSD, for example, we'll, we'll use this as an example. And you're maybe apprehensive to talk about it um, for very good reasons, then uh, it it's advantageous for the neuropsychologist to go back and have a report that says, Hey, they might be uh, a little bit sheepish about talking about this. Maybe, you know, uh, if it's advantageous and you're not pressuring them too much, you might want to maybe drill down to this a little bit more. Uh, this is one application in which you could use it, but there's several different, uh, um, several different conditions it looks for. So <clears throat> it's, it's basically consolidating everything together to try to interpret emotion. So, um, in, in regards to lie detection, you're, there's certain biomarkers, not in all scenarios, but in a general scenario where you can look at to see if someone's lying. So uh, if they refuse to make eye contact, if they, uh, you know, they start to change their story or their, their uh, speech pattern changes instead of talking really, you know, consistently or monotonically, they start to speed up and talk really fast and they kind of try to avoid the subject, that kind of a thing. Um, so that's where the natural language processing comes in. Uh, and we're tracking your eyes, right? So we're seeing if you're, you know, how your eye movement changes uh, as, in regards or in comparison to how it was originally before we started talking about a certain topic, um, how you shift in your seat, any idiosyncrasies you might have with your foot jumping or, or anything like that, trying to kind of bring all this together to say, okay, we have evidence or we have, uh, uh, we have all, all this, you know, this data from this model that can that has you know detected that they might have a tremor or something that is uh, a pre-indication of of um, Alzheimer's or Tourette's or something, uh, because a lot of these uh, a lot of these conditions that you that are diagnosed once they are diagnosed it's too late you can't catch it because mm-hmm. uh, they really needed to be tracked before this they are way before this and you you know, might be able to reverse some damage if you were to find it early but you didn't so it's it, it, it's it's really kind of a sad thing so that for those conditions in which that scenario is true those are the or the uh, applications we're trying to focus on with this product is really helping with that trying to find alzheimer's early parkinson's early um and we're starting through these diagnostic interviews because it's also we're not only analyzing the patient we're also analyzing the doctor how they behave, right? Because we need to, you want to make sure that there's uh, there's un, there's no bias within the way the doctor's asking questions or how they're interpreting data. Um, so it, you have this entire data pipeline where you have computer vision and you have uh, natural language processing and you have uh, everything coming together uh, through this multimodal engine that's accepting different data responses to try to produce uh, an outcome or really try to produce a response to, to help advise the neuropsychologist for the next diagnostic interview. Um, and the biggest thing, the biggest issue with that is, uh, doc- is, is a couple of different things. Doctors talk in a much different regard than humans do. They use prescription names. They use that have, you know, 20 syllables in them. They use acronyms um, and they talk in a different manner in which I talk. Right. And so if I go in for an interview, the natural language processing model has got to monitor or has got to be able to recognize what I'm saying and recognize the vocabulary of the doctor. And so you really have these domains that may not even be really quite that similar, but you've got to try to accommodate for that and, 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 and interpret that accordingly. Um, now to synchronize these in data pipeline was very difficult because you have, you have, you have eye tracking data. So you have that input coming in, uh, you have speech data. So you have that input coming in, you have skeletal tracking data. So you have that input coming in and face or, uh, um, facial expression data. And so you have all these inputs coming in at once in which you have to partition and synchronize, which is very difficult. So in this regard, the uh, image processing or converting sounds into spectrograms actually helped as well because we're able to treat everything as an image coming in and it helps synchronize the data pipeline because what we were finding is that the audio was being processed way faster than the images and it was coming out of sync, right? So by slowing that down, um, by interpreting them as images, it helped kind of 
synchronize everything back up. You use more compute power, um, which we understand, but it did help uh, kind of synchronize everything back together to uh, produce the outcome we needed. Mm, so I'll pause for a moment because, yeah, that's a, I just said a lot. Yeah, yeah, that was a hell of a lot. I'll tell you what I was thinking as I was listening to you talk there. I was talking to uh, Alan Watts lately. I don't know if you're familiar with Alan Watts. He's like this... Uh, Zen and uh, he talks a lot about waves and patterns, and he talks a lot about how uh, um, the brain is tuned to focus on the constant and therefore miss the rest of the picture. And as you were kind of explaining, I was thinking, well, all these technologies coming together, what does it give you? Well, it gives you basically an existent human because. It doesn't matter what you are, whether you're a new doctor, whatever you are, you have bad days, you have when you're stressed, you have days when your blood sugar's low. It doesn't matter if you're the best lie detector in the world, you miss things. If you're not a lie detector, kind of, even if you're a kind of a neuropsychologist or what have you, there are things that you just miss because it's just one of them human traits that you just miss. The constant in front of you is the person talking and they're even just listening to someone, paying attention to them talk, you'll miss body language because you're so, so tuned into listening to them. And so having something like this that is able to hide that level of consistency where humans are not fantastic at is fantastic. And again, it can be used in a lot of other places. I don't want to necessarily should be used for law enforcement. <laughs> yeah. you, can yeah. see, you can see an application there, can't you, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we have to be really careful about how this can be used because it's easy to see how this can be misused in, in different applications. Um, our goal with this is actually not to have it used in a diagnostic session like that. We're actually trying to make it so that we can have, you can have a personalized, like a personal app on your device. So we, we take care of our dental health twice a day, usually sometimes more, sometimes less, but it's fair to say that most of us probably take brush our teeth twice a day for two minutes each time. Right. That's a pretty small task that we do for just our mouse. Why don't we do the same thing for our brains? Right. We need, it might be advantageous to have a mental checkup once in a while that uh, just allows us to check in and just say, Hey, uh, you know, I don't, you know, we have a very intelligent model that, says, we see that you are consistent with the way you've been behaving before. Um, we don't detect any anomalies. Mental health is okay. Um, if you, if anyone's seen a, a movie called Ad Astra, uh, it's, I think it came out like four or five years ago, but it's, it stars Brad Pitt. And I, I really like the, the show because in there, uh, in order for him to get off of the ship, off of the spaceship, he has to do a, a, a voice processing check-in. So a robot says, how are you feeling today? And he goes through and he just answers a couple simple questions and it takes like 30 seconds. And they say, okay, uh, voice diagnostics pass. You are okay to get off the ship. Mental health, okay. And I thought, you know, that's, that's really, that's pretty seamless, right? It didn't take a lot of his time. And it's just diagnosing his mental health to make sure he can adequately perform his job well and to make sure he's okay. Uh, so if, if we can build something in a similar regard, by training it in uh, in an actual professional setting, such as you know neuropsychologist interview, then you know I, I think that's quite great, right? We we have something that can check our mental health. Um, it, uh, it's 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 going to take a significant effort, but it's worked really well so far from what we've been able to what we've been able to build and and, and acquire. But it definitely can be abused in in, in some regards. So if we can try to and you brought up a good point, you know, we lie detection is kind of difficult, right? And it, it, that's not always going to be accurate. I mean, we see uh, the current lie detection scenarios that don't really work in all cases. But if we have multiple 80% solutions, and we can take in, you know, if you imagine a Venn diagram, if we can take the intersection of those and say, okay, well, eight out of the 10 things we're looking for uh, seem to validate mental health, then we're going to consider that mental health validated or the mental health. Okay. Then that's something we're going for. We're not going for hundred percent accuracy in every solution, but an intersection of all solutions in which provide individually an 80% confidence, then uh, that's, that's what we try to achieve. Hmm. Um, so finally, then you mentioned earlier on the, the, the kind of vision and the future state more towards the kind of, general uh, a lot of the stuff that you've touched on has all the component parts of general ai you know computer vision skeletal movements uh natural language understanding or processing 
a lot of them, but obviously applied use case. How do you see the future of this technology and what do you think are the challenges that you need to overcome to, to manifest that more kind of general general application of, of AI? Right now, AI addresses very narrow, uh, very narrow solutions. So uh, I mean, you, you probably all heard the term narrow AI, but we don't have something that provides a lot of intelligence. A model has got to be retrained to classify uh, or identify vehicles, and it's got to be retrained to identify people, and it's got to, and a different architecture, and it's got to be retrained to identify fruits and vegetables. Something that uh, we're trying to aim to provide models that provide general intelligence. So what I mean by that is we can have a neural network or uh, in this case, let's think, let's, let's speak about a natural language processing um, model that can um, identify different languages and identify what they're saying. Right. So automatically detect what language is being spoken, what, uh, and transcribe it. Right. So we have a transcription of that language, convert it from uh, English to German uh, and actually determine what uh, the person is like, actually detect the answer to a question within a stream of text. That's a pretty intelligent model um, that, you know, acquire or that analyzes really the entire domain space of language. Uh, if we can do something similar to, uh, you know, acknowledge car sounds, right? Like, uh, or not car sounds, but um, you, you're going to use different audio processing modules to walk to the store to make sure a car isn't honking at you or uh, you don't hear a car crash next to you, right? These aren't really languages, but there's something that you should still be aware of for an intelligent being to actually function in society. So being able to have a general audio processing model would be great. That, that can recognize all these things and, and make good sense of them. Being able to have a general vision model would be great. So it can actually identify all these things with different accuracy um, and, and actually provide, you know, intelligent responses. We see a lot of uh, there and there's some efforts in this, right? Like we have yellow object detection, um, which per, can recognize a bunch of different objects but it's really more of recognition of objects instead of navigating. Like you couldn't ask really a YOLO um, computer vision model to navigate you down the stairs and to your front door. It, mm. it, it can't do that because it's just identifying objects, maybe obstacle avoidance. But if you have a vision model that can do all of this at once, you have pretty general intelligence in that in regards to vision. Um, I'm a big fan of actually trying to replicate as much. My, my career goal is to actually replicate replicate or simulate consciousness um and i think it can be done and not for the point of bringing about irobot but to actually understand more about how to fix anomalies in the human brain so if we can try to provide a um a, a simulative model of the human brain that's pretty accurate or let's just say a simulative model of the auditory cortex just if we had a really accurate model about how the auditory cortex in a in a human brain worked we could solve a lot of problems on it because we could simulate different scenarios to say, okay, well, we know that this individual uh, that is hard of hearing didn't lose their hearing because of this. It was because of one of these two or three events because we simulated it on a pretty accurate computer model. That's, that's pretty helpful, right? We can see how that would be helpful in a lot of different regards. If you extrapolate this to vision and extrapolate this to, you know, a general brain, uh, you can run all these different scenarios that can help us solve problems within uh, the human brain. And that's a very, that might not even happen in my lifetime. That's a pretty lofty goal because the human brain is an incredibly complex thing. But if we can zone in on maybe a few smaller portions of the brain and really try to, uh, really try to replicate that into some regard. So we have something that, um, you know, that, that, that can provide intelligence onto a, a lot of these diseases or condition, medical conditions that are hard to interpret. I think we're all the better for it. So really developing, uh, intelligent models that closely resemble the architecture of the human brain is, is the, is the fundamental goal of seeker and the long-term vision goal of seeker. My mind, my, speaking of brains, my brain has been a bit blown by that. To be fair. Uh, Cause it is a tremendous challenge, obviously. Um, mm. And I think that, but here are examples hearing that your kind of philosophy on it and seeing the actual work that's being solved in those narrow problems is, is good first step you know and i think that i've mm. as, as heard of i've seen examples of recognition for for things like alzheimer's and stuff like that but i think the combining that technology the eye tracking with the skeletal mission with all of those different things starts to put the speech technology which a lot of our listeners will be 
familiar with and comfortable with, starts to put that to new use and more practical use. One of the things of the UX world that we've been trying to explore over the last kind of three years really is where does this voice technology value and fill it with other technologies and bundle all together a bit like a mobile phone. It's useful because the internet, it's got screens, got cameras, you know, it's got it's got it's got touch, it's got this accumulation of a whole bunch of technologies worth solving problem and i think what you're explaining and the examples that you have i think is a perfect example of those individual ai capabilities coming together to perform better than each component could do on its own so i think it's, it's fantastic thank you yes it's a it's a lofty goal and it's uh you know it's we'll we'll hope to we'll hope to just you know at least achieving any progress whatsoever that can help influence other companies to uh you know take the baton and move forward with it um really that benefits the world so that's that's what matters and if you think about if you like one thing that i've noticed is uh ai is really logic based right like if you if we were to build a robot today uh it probably would not be able to interpret emotion and understand sarcasm and understand all these different things. So, so you think about what goes into understanding emotion. Well, you can't just do it from speech. You can't just do it from vision. Um, some people argue you have to have touch to actually interpret how a person's feeling, right? So you have to have at least two data mediums to interpret emotion um, and synchronize those together. And, uh, you know, if it might come to a point where your phone can do that because it's got an eye and it's got an ear in which it can, and, and a brain to process everything. And if that can kind of in, help interpret emotional state, mental state, uh, that's, that's, that's fantastic. You know, it's uh, one thing that's key to that is to make sure that it, your data is kept on the device. Uh, Cause it's easy to see how if you have a cloud that knows everyone's emotions that can get pretty dangerous, pretty quick and turn into <laughs> a nightmare. It's a fine yeah. movie, but uh Privacy is of paramount importance on this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it is with all of the stuff I'm thinking about uh, this line model being used in places uh, is crazy. I think it can be abused to, to have. Um, but, you I know, agree. I think the value of having it, yeah, having it uh, at the moment in a closed environment like yourselves building it, you're in control of where it's used. Uh, and so you can, you can kind of be responsible with it. And I think that this is, I think the more we, we kind of learn about it and the more we start applying this stuff, uh, it's very, I think in 2018, 2017, the conversation and certainly on the voice assistant side around ethics and stuff like that, pretty much confined to things like, is it right to have a voice assistant mail? Should it be, what does that do for gender stereotypes? Should it be male? What do you do there? But I think that when you start talking about how you can use this technology to actually either manipulate people's behavior or, you know, you can affect things on a much, much grander scale. As, as you said, it's a cloud that understands how to read emotion and can make decisions based on that at an individual hyper-personalized level. It starts to get uh, very, very tricky indeed. So it'll be interesting just to, to watch how this goes yes i, I agree there's uh even there's like even if we have the capability we should always ask whether or not we should implement that capability right and so yeah. uh you know making sure a lot of these newer technologies that come about are protecting privacy and preserving ethics and you know uh really having that debate like i would uh when I was a kid, if, if I would have thought of robots, I would have never have incorporated ethics into the equation, right? Because you just, yeah. you see what you see on sci-fi movies, but now that should be the first question you ask, right? Should we do it? How do we do it ethically? And how do we do it, you know, uh, the most, um, in, 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 in the most civil manner, really. Uh, and civil and ethics don't always go in the same boat. But, uh, you know, if, if we can try to have those conversations and make sure that we develop, uh, we, don't want, we don't want to look back and say AI was a good thing, but it turned into a bad thing that everyone hates and we don't want to ever use it, right? We want to make sure it's the catalyst for a lot of good things. So, and, and uh, you know, it starts, usually starts with ethics. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it any better. That's, that's a lot on the table in terms of some of the things that we didn't quite get to, which is edge computing, you know, while uh, we probably could have spoke at length about privacy and security and, and all this kind of stuff. But uh, we are about out of time. But I, I, I'm definitely interested in having you along again, Cordell, if you, as, as things develop, as you you uh, keep on building out this technology and find and apply new use cases to it. Absolutely interesting.
interested in, in, in having you back again and, and I really appreciate your, your time, uh, your expertise, insights. Uh, where can people uh, find out more about Seeker Technologies if they, if they want to do so and where can they reach out to you for more information and follow your journey? Sure. So uh, secret, you can go to secrettech.com um, and uh, learn more a little bit about most of our products. Some of them are under research. And so we don't specifically advertise those on our webpage because we don't want to give people the impression that it's a published product yet. So um, if you do, uh, if you do have any, um, you know, request any information that uh, maybe is something we talk about that isn't on the website quite yet, feel free to shoot me an email. Cordell at secrettech.com. Um, we do a, a free consultation, uh, initial consultation to just, you know, observe an idea and see, you know, if we have the capability to do it or to just even, you know, just to talk AI and, and, and see where, you know, our capabilities might align with the uh, capabilities of other people. So um, feel free to drop me an email uh, or fill out the request form online. Um, I, I, I do uh, post a lot about our, our company through LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, and uh, I can I can put those in, in the footnotes or, or give them to you if you'd like. It's uh, Cordell France on Twitter and then um, also on LinkedIn as well. Um, but yeah, I do want to thank you again for the opportunity. I'm, I'm really a big fan of your podcast and, uh, I've actually learned a lot with it and, and, and how, in ways towards natural language processing. So, uh, I really like your effort that you're, that you, that you guys promote and, um, I'm, I'm an advocating listener. So thank you to you and your audience for your guys' time today. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. That's very nice. Appreciate that. It's uh, it's uh, definitely uh, a pleasure to to meet people like yourself and to spend this time uh, learning with the people tuning in is uh, is an absolute pleasure. And, and thank everyone for tuning in. Uh, as always, uh, next week I'll be on holiday. Well deserved break to Cornwall. So hopefully I'll be so but it'll be or not. It's impossible. To say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we will be back uh, next the week after that. Uh, same bad time. Uh, Cordell, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, really, really appreciate it. Definitely, let's do part two when the time is right because I think we let, we did leave a little bit on the table there. Uh, Please, yes. It. Nice one. Cool. Well, thank you all, all and uh, very soon. Bye now. <laughs>